Welcome to Season 7, Episode 9 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis and Kim Kessler. If you like what we offer on the roundtable, but want more advice on the practical application of concepts and tools that we discuss here, check out the Unpodcast, which Valerie and I provide for our subscribers at writership.com or valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle. So this week, I am looking at Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince in order to study point of view and narrative device. The novel by J.K. Rowling was published in 2005, but we will also look at the film based on the novel, which was released in 2009 and was directed by David Yates with a screenplay by Steve Cloves. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you may hear some adult words. Here's the story broken down into three acts. In the beginning hook, after months of Death Eater attacks and everyone realizing that Harry was right about Voldemort's return, Harry spies Draco Malfoy up to no good in the dark arts shop. But when no one will listen to Harry's suspicion that Draco Malfoy has become a Death Eater, Harry must decide whether to investigate on his own or let it go. On the train to Hogwarts, Harry spies on Malfoy, who curses him, bloodies his nose, and leaves him under his invisibility cloak, where Luna helps him make his way to the school. In the middle build, the school year gets underway, and soon a student is cursed by a dangerous, magical object. But when Dumbledore tells Harry they need a particular memory from Professor Slughorn, and Harry botches his first attempt to get the information, he must decide whether to use the liquid luck to get the information or not. He takes the potion and convinces Slughorn by mentioning Lily Potter. Harry and Dumbledore learn about Horcruxes and follow the clues to retrieve one. In the ending payoff, Harry and Dumbledore return to Hogwarts with a Horcrux locket, and Dumbledore tells Harry to fetch Snape and not interfere no matter what happens. But when several Death Eaters and Draco arrive and Snape attacks Dumbledore, Harry must decide whether to interfere or not. He follows directions, and Snape kills Dumbledore. Harry, Hermione, and Ron decide they will spend the next year seeking and destroying Horcruxes rather than return to school. So I am identifying the global genre as action epic savior with a worldview maturation internal genre for Harry. And as I'll talk about in a little in my discussion today, there are several subplots, and that includes multiple love story episodes. 
So I'm looking at Harry Potter today because I'm studying point of view and narrative device. If genre is what your story is about, point of view and narrative device are how you deliver it to your reader, or in the case of a film, your viewer. The narrative device or situation answers the questions, who or what is the source of the story? When and where is that source located in relation to the events and characters of the story? And who is the story for? And why is it being told? The point of view is the technical element, which tells us whether it's first or third person, for example. It answers the question, how do we create the effect of the narrative device for our readers? Point of view and narrative device are powerful tools that offer useful constraints to help you make content and technical decisions for solid story-based reasons. Now, I'll provide links to other resources in the show notes at storygrid.com, so be sure to check those out. But I want to get right into the story today. I start my analysis by asking about the opportunity presented by the premise. The premise is a specific character or characters in a setting with a problem. Here, Harry Potter is an adolescent wizard attending magical boarding school in a world with magical and non-magical domains. His primary external challenge is that the dark wizard Voldemort is bent on destroying society and holds a particular grudge against Harry specifically. Now, I'm focused on the global story here, but this story is what we would typically call an epic story. We need better terminology so that it's not confused with the action epic subgenre, which we also have going on here. For now, let's say that this story is one with an expansive scope. So these stories typically include multiple settings, they may span months or even years, a large cast of characters, many with strong internal arcs, multiple complicated forces of antagonism, multiple subplots and or storylines, and several smaller story threads that are woven through the scenes. The Harry Potter series, of course, is a great example of this, along with other fantasy and science fiction series. For example, Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, the Expanse series by James S.A. Corey, and the Patternist series by Octavia Butler. But we also see this in expansive scope historical fiction novels like Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, and 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The opportunity beyond showing this big world, is to show how adolescence makes sense of the complex world in which they face existential threats, and it helps them to take action when adults aren't always listening, and it helps them trust their intuition. Just as with adults, this story or stories like this provide a way of smuggling in advice and information that would probably be rejected otherwise. Instead, we get it in the form of an entertaining story. Okay, so what's the point of view here? 
the vast majority of the story, the narrative that is, is in selective omniscience, which we also call close third. And it's from inside Harry's mind. The narrative distance between the narrator or the narrating entity and the character here is quite close. There are loads of scenes where no one is actually filtering Harry's experience, at least on the surface. Now, even within Harry's scenes, a narrator occasionally pops in to share some information about the circumstances or the world. So again, that's what most of the narrative consists of. But we also see instances of neutral and editorial omniscience. For example, in the opening scene with the muggle prime minister, Fudge and Scrimgeour, when we have access to the prime minister's thoughts and memories. But the narrative distance is pretty close here, but it's clearly it's clear that the events are filtered through a narrator. We have a similar type of narration in the Spinner's End scene with Snape, Bellatrix, and Narcissa, but we don't have access to anyone's thoughts, only their actions and spoken words. The narrative distance here is more remote, and Rowling uses this point of view when she wants to keep the character's true motivations a secret from the reader. Here, she wants to keep us guessing about where Snape's loyalties lie. So that's the point of view. We've got a mixed bag. What's the narrative device? Now, when you have an anonymous narrative device or situation, you have to get creative to identify who is delivering the story or what is delivering the story. Now, I realize I'm on very shaky ground here, hypothesizing about a well-loved story. And if the Harry Potter series is a fixture of your life, you probably already have some ideas about the narrative device. Now, I want to be clear, I am not putting forth what I think is the right answer to what's the narrative device in this story, but merely a possibility. My goal is to show you how you can begin to uncover the narrative device in stories when it's not clear and you want to use them as a masterwork and a model for your own stories. The vast majority of stories that use some variety of third person are um, anonymous. So to figure out that narrative device, we need to use our imagination to consider what it could be and look at for clues in the text. We might also look at who would want to tell a story like this to deliver the controlling idea as a message to a particular audience. So what clues am I looking at here? Harry's selective omniscient narration is really different from Ailish's in Brooklyn or Baby's in Baby Driver because it feels like we're in each protagonist's experience the whole time in those two stories. But here, Harry's narration feels curated by someone else, someone other than Harry for different purposes. Given the expansive scope of 
this story and the different points of view and the range of narrative distance, the narration really feels like it's curated. The narrator could be someone like Dumbledore, though not Dumbledore himself. And it's happening years or decades in the future in the form of a pensive, that the that device that allows the viewer to experience memories of others. And so I'm thinking of someone who has access to that device and a vast library of memories. Now, one of the main clues for me comes when I see how this works in the story. When Harry and Dumbledore are inside Bob Ogden's memory, for instance, when he visits the Gaunt household, they can see Ogden from the outside. It's like a film. And that's different from the typical limited omniscient that we see in the stories that I've mentioned. They can't see themselves from the outside unless they're looking in a mirror or some other reflective surface. So this narration feels really different, and it feels like something that we might see in that device. The audience for a story like this, I think, would be a young person or several young people who are facing life-threatening situations, as well as all the usual challenges that come with adolescence, which are quite enough without a powerful wizard destroying your world. So how well does this narrative device and the point of view choice work? How well do they leverage the opportunities presented by the premise? I think the point of view and narrative device choices here do a great job of delivering on the promise of the premise with all of its layers. As I suggested earlier, you need a robust narrative device to carry a story this big, one that's capable of bringing us many different perspectives on the world while also staying close to one character in particular. Now I want to take a quick detour about the way that scenes are constructed that seems typical of expansive stories like this one because it's a technical approach and it's it goes like this you'll have an inciting incident and maybe a progressive complication or two but then we shift away to some other component of the story it might be to explore some facet of the world or a story thread or a subplot, but our attention is taken away from the main problem of the scene that we started with. Now, after some time, we get some more progressive complications related to that main problem. And then the turning point progressive complication arises that forces the crisis, the climax, and the resolution of the scene. Now, I'll have more to say about this in the future, but this is part of what Brandon Sanderson is talking about when he refers to the difference between epic and thriller pacing. So this is a big consideration if you are intending to write a story with an expansive scope like this. Okay, so that's my take on Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince and its point of view and narrative device. Valerie, you're going to talk to us about the 20-scene story spine. 
What have you found? Okay, so this episode, I'm returning to my study of the three-act structure of stories. And really, no matter how you slice it, all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end that are designed to hook the reader or a viewer, to build the tension and stakes, and pay off the story as a whole. Recently, Sean provided a strategy for us to break that middle build down into two parts. And he writes about it in detail in Action Story, The Primal Genre, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So if you're struggling with the macro structure of your story, really, I highly recommend that you go check that book out. Now, as most people know, Harry Potter is a story that's told over seven books. And while each book progresses the overall series story, it also contains a story of its own. Not surprisingly, then... Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince contains threads from multiple storylines, and Leslie was just talking about this. I counted 13 plot lines in this particular film, and Leslie picked up on this as well. Six of those 13 are love stories, which is great fun. Some of these are fragments from stories that begin and end in other books within the series. Some begin and end within this novel, and some relate to the the series-wide story. For the purposes of today's episode, I'm going to focus on the main thread of the film, and that is the Harry Slughorn plotline. However, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate basically what Leslie just said, because it's interesting to me that Leslie and I have are picking up on the same couple of notes here for, for ourselves as readers and writers and editors, but also for everyone who's listening. So if you're writing an epic fantasy or a story that stretches over several books or even a story that has multiple plot lines, I recommend that you study each of the storylines here and discover how they fit within the context of the seven novel series. But before I dive into all that, the beginning, middle, end stuff, I want to take a minute and touch on the forces of antagonism that are at play in this film and in the novel. If I were to ask you what or who the forces of antagonism are in the Harry Potter series, you'd probably say Voldemort, Severus Snape, Draco Malfoy, Lucius Malfoy, and the other Death Eaters, and you would be right. What's interesting to me about this film is that none of those characters are particularly concerned with Harry. And I'll be honest, I never noticed that until I started to analyze it for today's episode. I mean, they're aware of Harry, obviously, but he's not the the prime target that he's been in other films. There is one quick reference to Harry and him being a target after Bellatrix and the Death Eaters burned down the Weasley home. In a walk and talk scene, Hermione says, it's bloody easy for them to get to you, Harry. And that's about it. The real story that's happening here is that Voldemort has ordered a hit on Dumbledore. Most of this plot line, though, is off stage, and because of the point of view that Leslie just brought us through, we only get little snippets of that storyline. Harry isn't privy to that plot, and so therefore neither are we. Harry spends the story on assignment, essentially, from Dumbledore. He's been tasked with convincing Horace Slughorn to reveal his true memory of Tom Riddle. There's so much of the global series story stuff to pack into this film that the the Harry Slughorn storyline actually takes up relatively little screen time. And that's something else I hadn't noticed until I studied 
the the film for this episode. Now, I did read the novel multiple times years ago, but I haven't read it for a while now, so I'm a bit rusty. My memory, though, is that there's much more in the novel about Harry wondering what Draco was up to than we get here in the film. Now, a little side note here. I know I'm doing a tangent on a tangent, but bear with me. Viewers know Harry Potter so well that if the filmmakers fudge a detail or two, it almost doesn't matter because we subconsciously fill in the details ourselves. Since I read the series multiple times, honestly, I didn't notice gaps in the storytelling in the film when I watched the films, because that's exactly what I was doing. I was filling stuff in automatically. However, when my sister and one of my friends watched this series and neither of them had read the books or knew anything about the Harry Potter world at all. They both got lost watching the films because that things would drop in and they didn't know who a character was, or my sister didn't know who Hermione was. <laughs> uh, she has since been educated. I will just throw that in. <laughs> but for us, I mean, this is fine. We're talking about Harry Potter and JK Rowling. For us, at the, where we are in our careers, it's really important for us to keep in mind that if we're studying films as masterworks, sometimes we've got to go back to the novels and really look at those too, because we are, first and foremost, novelists. So back to my issue on the forces of antagonism. Who or what is the primary force of antagonism in this film? Well, I think it's Slughorn, Horace Slughorn. Now, he's also a mentor and an ally, but he's the primary antagonist for Harry's book level or, or film level plot line. Yes, Harry does come up against Snape. He, he always will. He deals with the Death Eaters and he has a run-in or two with Draco. But with Draco in particular, it's interesting that in the film version, Draco could really care less about Harry. This is a huge shift from other films. Like Draco's got his own internal storyline happening. He's, he's kind of leaving Harry alone here. It's Harry who is pursuing Draco, and it's Harry who forces Draco to react to protect himself. All right, now for the three-act breakdown. Uh, you're going to notice that what I'm saying here is different than what Leslie mentioned at the outset of the episode, and that's because, well, it's two, two reasons. One, we're using a different focal length. I've got a more micro view of the story than she used. And of course, I'm looking at the film this week, and Leslie focused primarily on the novel. So the beginning hook, this is the protagonist's ordinary world. Life might not be perfect, but at least the hero knows how it works. He knows what to do, what not to do, and who's who in the zoo. This is the hero's home turf. And the five commandments in the beginning hook are the inciting incident. Dumbledore asks Harry to get to know Horace Slughorn. He says that Horace will try to collect Harry and that Harry should let him. The turning point is when Pro Professor McGonagall sees Harry and Ron laughing uh, at the first year students trying to find their way around Hogwarts. And she suggests that if Harry wants to be an Auror, he should be in Slughorn's advanced potions class. The crisis, and this really isn't much of a crisis, but you know, it is what it is. This is when Harry is debating with himself or debating whether he will go to potions or not. Yep, it's an extra class and he doesn't particularly want to take it, but it does give him a chance to get to know Slughorn and it, it avoids in the moment having a, an argument with McGonagall. The climax is that he decides to go to potions class and he drags Ron with him. The resolution, and it's a beautiful little scene, 
Harry and Ron, or I don't even know if it's a full scene, but a, a, a an interstitial tissue passage, as uh, Sean would call it. It's Harry and Ron going down a corridor. They're setting off for potions class. And Harry has to listen to Ron griping about doing this extra course. Now, the middle build, Sean has broken into two parts. The first part we call middle build one, and the second is middle build two. The middle build generally is the extraordinary world, and it's the villain's home turf. The first part of the middle build is when we see our hero as a fish out of water. And for me, it's really interesting because typically in, in any other series, if a character got on a train from a in a non-magical world and was transported into a magical world, that would certainly qualify as crossing the threshold. But that is not the case uh, in this book here. It was the case in book one of the series, but here it's this is all Harry's ordinary world. He takes the train to Hogwarts all the time. It's all run of the mill by this point. In this part of the story, for me, Harry crossing the threshold is when he enters Slughorn's advanced potions class. The inciting incident is when Harry aces potions class thanks to the Half-Blood Prince. Now a note here is that even though the book and the film are called Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, um, it doesn't really play into this film version. And my, again, my memory on the novel is a bit fuzzy, but it doesn't play into the film too much. It's more of a setup for a later payoff in the series. And it isn't really surprising at the end when we find out that Snape is the half-blood prince, given that he was the potions master for so many years. Anyway, it's, it's interesting to me. The turning point for Middle Build 1, this is when the antagonist targets the protagonist, and it's when we get the first glimmer of the hero's gift. I think this actually plays out in two different scenes. Now, obviously, Slughorn sees Harry's gift for potions in the potions class, or what he perceives to be Harry's gift, because Slughorn is not aware of the Half-Blood Prince or the notes in the book that Harry is using. The second part, for me, takes place at the Three Broomsticks, and this is when Slughorn floats the idea of a dinner party past Harry. This is remarkably similar to Gatsby's approach to Nick, in the film Gatsby that we did a few episodes ago. The antagonist is testing the protagonist to see exactly what kind of character they're dealing with. Now, for the crisis of Middle Build 1, it's really helpful to look at it from the antagonist's point of view. Slughorn's object of desire, what he's trying to do here, is recruit Harry. He wants to collect him and have him be part of the Slug Club. The invitation to a dinner party gives Harry a false sense of security. It suggests that getting to know Slughorn isn't going to be too difficult. Now, remember, at this point here in the Three Broomsticks, Harry doesn't know why Dumbledore wants him to get to know the professor. After the dinner party, with his false sense of security, Harry boldly asks Slughorn about Tom Riddle. He just spits it right out. He's testing the waters, but he's quickly shut down because Slughorn is not going to give an inch here. The climax is the revelation that Slughorn has modified his memory. And I love the Pensieve. I think it's my most favorite thing from the Harry Potter magical world, and I would really love to have one. <laughs> the resolution of Middle Build One is when Dumbledore tells Harry that without Slughorn's true memory, they do not have a chance of catching Voldemort. 
Dumbledore tells Harry that he's got no choice. He must not fail to get that true memory. Middle Build Wand ends with the antagonist's monstrous execution of force. That's how Sean put it. And the midpoint of this film is when the Death Eaters burn down the Weasley home. And yes, this qualifies as a monstrous execution of force, absolutely, but it doesn't have anything to do directly with the Harry Slughorn plotline. Slughorn has his own monstrous execution of force in the very next scene. So it's still around that midpoint, right, of the film. It's hard for me before I start to do this analysis to think of Slughorn having anything that would be considered monstrous or a monstrous execution of force, but it's there. So the scene right after the house burning down, we discover that Slughorn has altered his memory of a conversation he had with Tom Riddle. Now, how is this a monstrous execution of force? Well, in my opinion, it demonstrates Slughorn's magical prowess but it also clearly indicates that he's putting his professional reputation ahead of the lives of thousands of magical and muggle people. Later, when he does eventually share the memory with Harry, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> he asks Harry not to tell anybody because it would ruin him. So he's putting a professional reputation before innocent lives. And to me, that qualifies as monstrous. So this flips us over into the middle build too. And this is the chaos phase. And remember when the protagonist is in chaos, everybody else is in chaos too. So the inciting incident, of course, because it's inciting, it's going to be something that kicks off action into the middle build, but it's unexpected because this is chaos we're going into, right? So it's something that, that neither the audience nor the characters has seen coming. Here, Harry asks Slughorn about Tom Riddle and about rare magic directly. He goes right into Slughorn's classroom and just blurts it out. And in doing so, he gives himself away. The turning point, this is the all is lost moment of the story. And curiously, it's off screen in my opinion. I think because it builds so quickly from that inciting incident, and we know that Harry has given himself away. So even though Slughorn and Harry have patched things up by now, and we know that Slughorn admires Harry's quick thinking when he saves Ron, Harry has still tipped his hand, and we know Slughorn is not going to give up the original memory. He's not even really going to admit that he tampered with his memory. The crisis of Middle Bill 2 is also off screen. And it's this, will Harry admit defeat and tell Dumbledore that he's failed and can't get the memory from Slughorn, or will he try another tactic? The climax is that Harry remembers he has the liquid luck potion, and he uses that to approach Slughorn. In the resolution, after taking the potion, Harry decides to go to Hagrid's rather than to go see Slughorn. And I think the reason we can get away with, or the filmmakers can get away with not having this turning point in crisis on screen, again, it's because we know this story so well, the viewers did watching it, we still know it really well, but also because there's so much else going on in this story that we can, we can sort of make these connections in our head without having to have this on screen. And there's lots of other things happening to keep our attention. The ending payoff then is when this new normal emerges and the inciting incident is when Harry catches Slughorn stealing tentacular leaves. That is a hilarious scene. Absolutely hilarious. 
The turning point is when Aragog is dead. Praise the Lord, Aragog is dead. That guy creeps me right out. Slughorn and Hagrid get tipsy as they mourn Aragog's death. The crisis, and this is Slughorn's crisis. It's not, it's, it's interesting to me. It's not Harry's. Will Slughorn give up his original or true memory or not? The climax is that Slughorn gives up his true memory. And the resolution is the revelation that Voldemort has created Horcruxes and the one that Dumbledore risked his life to retrieve is fake. Oh, that's a heartbreaking moment, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it is. Thank you, Valerie, for going through all of those details, because it is really, there's so much going on in this story, and finding your way through that is tricky. And I really like, too, that you can see the different levels of resolution from if you're just looking at the middle build as one piece and when you're looking at it in two pieces. I think that's really useful for writers. So thank you very much. Okay, so from the big scope of the story, we're going to zero in now on the core event. And Kim, you're going to take us through that. What have you found? So I am examining core events this season to better understand how to pay off a story's global content genre and the experience that our reader is hoping for. The core event is one of four elements in the four core framework that make a content genre the experience that it is. This framework begins with a core need, which is represented by the core values. The protagonist pursues their need, which causes the values to shift, and that evokes the core emotion in the reader. Now, the core event is that peak moment of the shift, and it's the height of that core emotion and our reader's experience. If you're interested in learning more about core events, I encourage you to check out two new titles from StoryGrid Publishing, The Four Core Framework by Sean Coyne, and that explains the fundamental elements for each of the 12 content genres, and Four Core Fiction, an anthology of 12 original short stories written by StoryGrid certified editors, one for each of the 12 content genres, globally edited by myself and Rebecca Monarusso. Okay, so let's get into today's story, genre, and core event. And just to echo on what Leslie and Valerie have said, you know, one of the many things that I love about the Harry Potter series is that they have so many layers, internal arcs galore, performance plots, along with action epic, life and death stakes, and, you know, a mystery or three to solve in every book. Much of the narrative drive for the Harry Potter novels is the reader trying to figure out the answers with Harry and Ron and Hermione all in the service of stopping Voldemort from rising to power once again. So today's core event plays out like a mashup of the core events for action and crime. So we have a hero at the mercy of the villain scene combined with an exposure of the criminal scene. And it's just a lot of fun. And it's tragic and sad. So the core, the four core framework for action, the need is survival. The core value is life and death. And the core emotion is excitement and all culminating in a core event of a hero at the mercy of the villain scene. For crime, we have a core need of safety, a core value of justice and injustice, a core emotion of intrigue or fascination, all culminating in the event, in the core event of an exposure of the criminal. 
Okay. So just with those couple things in mind, let's look closer now and walk through our core event beat by beat to see how the life values are in play throughout. So this story's core event takes place when Dumbledore and Harry return from their mission to the cave to retrieve the Horcrux. Dumbledore is weakened from the ordeal, and so the life and death stakes are already in play. They apparate back from the cave into Hogsmeade, where they see Madame Rosmerda, who tells them that a dark mark has appeared over the astronomy tower. Now, this is the inciting incident of the scene, and it shifts us from you know positive to negative on the life-death value spectrum. So if you think about it, they just survived this ordeal, things are going okay, but now that we're learning about a dark mark, which is always a symbol of that someone has been murdered, um, it's shifting us negatively on life and death spectrum. They borrow broomsticks from her and they fly up to the tower to see what has happened. This is a progressive complication. It's a tool so that they can get there quickly to, you know, find out if a crime has been committed, possibly help someone in need, but it also puts them in more danger. So you can see it kind of goes both ways here. Um, In the film, though, they operate directly into the astronomy tower and there is no dark mark at this point. So it just the progressive complications are a little bit more shallow in the film version. So in the book, though, this is a trap, right? The reason why the dark mark was put there is as a trap to lure them to come see what's going on. Um, okay, so back into the scene. So someone is coming. Um, this is a progressive complication. It's an obstacle and it's a threat to life. Dumbledore uses Petrificus Totalis to petrify Harry, who's hidden under his invisibility cloak so that he cannot interfere and will be kept safe. This is another progressive complication, a tool that keeps Harry safe. And also it's a callback to that beginning scene on the train when Draco did the same thing to him for spying. So it's really fun to see that come full circle. Um, In the film version, this is changed to Dumbledore instructing Harry to hide below, stay silent, and Harry dutifully keeping his word to him as he promised, um, obeys and goes below. In the novel, this act is specifically what allows Draco to disarm Dumbledore with Expelliarmus. Um, And this is a progressive complication obstacle. Now, and he still is disarmed in the film, it's just slightly different. Now, Dumbledore is now at the mercy of Draco, and Harry is helpless to stop it. So the life value of the beat has shifted even more negatively in terms of life and death, uh, but in also in terms of identifying the criminal, we are shifting to the positive because we're gaining knowledge, and Harry is basically proving to himself that he was right all along to suspect Draco of what he's doing. So Dumbledore now questions Draco and the entirety of Draco's mission is revealed. He's been ordered by Voldemort to kill Dumbledore. This is a progressive complication. It's an obstacle for Draco as well as Dumbledore. And despite his missteps, Draco's missteps over the course of the story with the cursed necklace and the poison mead, he has now mended the vanishing cabinet in the room of requirement. And it's forming a passage to another vanishing cabinet that's in Borgen and Burks, that creepy shop that is in Diagon Alley. Now the Death Eaters have direct access to Hogwarts. And this is a progressive complication, an obstacle that takes our life values even more negative in the scene. So cue the Death Eaters' arrival. They come on stage. Dumbledore greets him in his polite and nonchalant fashion. Uh, but now he's at the mercy of Draco and others. and. The values for life and death are their most negative yet in the scene. 
And again, remember in the book, Harry is petrified um, under his invisibility cloak. And in the film, he is under direct orders from Dumbledore to stay put. So it is all very, very tense. But then Snape arrives and takes control of the situation. This is an active turning point progressive complication and also a tool, just not in the way that the reader or Harry thinks that it is. And this moment of Snape arriving on the scene shifts the life value from looming damnation to actually a hope for life. So even though Snape is going to kill Dumbledore, he saves Draco from committing a murder and his soul from splitting, which is what Dumbledore wants because he's already dying from the curse in his hand after he destroyed the Horcrux in the ring. Now, this all won't be revealed to us until the end of book seven, but it is still a factor that is in play in this scene, which J.K. Rowling knows. Okay, so in the film, Snape, who Dumbledore has assured is trustworthy, arrives below where Harry is and signals for him to stay silent by, you know, putting a finger over his lips. This becomes a crisis moment here for whether or not to trust Snape, and Harry obeys. This change from the book version to the film version is presumably to keep the actor Daniel Radcliffe in a more active state during this time um, rather than being, you know, petrified invisibly on the floor. And then later they use it to fuel Harry's feeling of guilt for not intervening when he had the chance and also amplifies that betrayal of Snape. So, you know, it's fine, but Harry Potter fans no doubt prefer the scene in the book. Now, in the book, Harry doesn't have a crisis really until after his Petrificus Totalis spell lifts, at which point he has to decide whether to go after the Death Eaters or not, which, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer there. But it does put him and his life values now more at risk when he does. Okay, so back to the scene. So once Snape arrives, Draco now has a crisis. Does he stand aside or does he finish the job for himself? And Snape too has a crisis. Does he go through with his promise to both Narcissa and Dumbledore? Or not. And all Harry can do is helplessly watch, just like the reader. And it's so awful. And then in the scene, Dumbledore pleads with Snape and he says, please. Then the climactic moment happens. Snape honors his promise and kills Dumbledore with Avada Kedavra. The life value shifts from literal life and death, from literal life to literal death. But in reality, For me, it's from damnation to life prevails. If Dumbledore and Snape had let Draco carry out his order and commit murder, all three of them would have faced damnation. Now, because of Snape and Dumbledore's sacrifice, even in death, life will prevail for Draco because that's what love does. So this core event is the culmination of so many questions that we've had over the course of the story. What mission was Draco given? What did Snape promise to do to Narcissa and to Dumbledore? And is Snape really trustworthy? What has Draco been doing in the Room of Requirement? And so this core event scene delivers on that core emotion of intrigue, because all those questions are answered, and excitement, um, which feels more like anxiety, I think, in this case, but it's probably the same. Um, We do get more excitement maybe in the book in more of a traditional action sense, um, immediately following this because um, there is a battle scene that happens between the Order of the Phoenix and the Death Eaters. So we definitely see more of those kind of action elements happening in the book. 
Now, this scene is the climactic payoff for this book, and it's a giant turning point for the series as a whole. This scene um, is the all is lost moment of the seven book series. And if you look at the structure of the series itself, the seven book series, it's this thing of beauty. So you have book one is like your beginning hook and books two and three act as middle build one. Book four is a midpoint shift and it's an escalation of stakes and a descent into chaos at the end of that book. So then books five and six are in chaos in middle build two. And then book seven is the ending payoff. So for more fun story nerdery, you can check out this list of differences between the Harry Potter books and films. Um, I wasted a ton of time reading through that yesterday. Um, And it's really interesting to me to think about the changes between books and the film and how those changes actually change the life values at stake in the scenes themselves. And no matter what medium, every story that we take in is an opportunity to learn something more about storytelling and the kind of storytellers that we want to be. Great. Thank you, Kim. That was a really wonderful assessment of the the core event and that culmination of all the action in in this story, but also the stories that have come before. Okay, we like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. So what have we learned this week, Valerie? Even if, or especially if, you're writing a multi-plot story, you've still got to get the story spine of the global plot nailed down. If that isn't working, the rest of your story isn't working either. My takeaway today is that you are the architect of your story and understanding your own intent and what's happening beneath the surface of your core event scene or any scene for that matter will help you craft it in such a way that every beat can trigger our core motion, leading to an all-powerful payoff. My key takeaway this week is in comparing the film and the novel and how clearly I can see the difference between what Brandon Sanderson calls epic pacing and thriller pacing and the extra demands on the point of view and narrative device that we have with an expansive story like this one. Your narrative device needs to be a robust one, and it needs to be robust enough to deliver the vast number of events, characters, and world details. You might think of it as a highway sufficient for the volume of traffic without collapsing or creating a confused mess. And that is something I look forward to studying further uh, as I continue my studies. All right, that wraps it up for this week. My thanks to Kim and Valerie for their excellent editorial insights to help us all better understand what makes Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince such a great story. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about incorporating point of view and narrative device in your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes as well. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast distributor and tell your writer friends about us. 
Well, that's a wrap for season seven as well. Join us next time when Valerie and I will share a bite-sized episode on the powerful argument scene in the film Marriage Story, which we discussed in episode five of this season. Why not give it a look and a listen during the week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.